meeting of English Baptist pastors in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. And in the middle of his speech, he was interrupted by an older pastor who said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. On May 12, 1792, that young pastor, um, whose name was William Carey, published a pamphlet titled, and this is typical of the late 1700s, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens, in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicality of the further undertakings are considered. It's a good title for a pamphlet. (laughs) Prior to William Carey, missions, as we think of it today, really didn't exist. So during the age of the exploration, uh, lands would be conquered and and claimed for a king and and for God, for, for the king of whichever country was doing the claiming. Sometimes priests and monks would be sent in to establish mission outposts and convert the, uh, the natives to Roman Catholicism. This happened largely in uh, South and Central America and then worked its way into the American Southwest. But in the Protestant world, which by Carey's day, the late 1700s, uh, the Protestant world was about 250 years old following the Reformation, Much of the spread of the gospel was accomplished in more informal ways as opposed to through a concerted missionary effort. In other words, ideas spread naturally as people talked, as preachers preached, as books were published and and read. And of course, we remember the rise of persecution, which forced Christian pilgrims to seek new lands in order to safely live as Christians. This naturally spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, even to North America. By the mid to late 1700s, the Protestant world was finally free and in many ways had become very complacent about the spread of the gospel, about missions. But God laid a burden on William Carey's heart, specifically for missions, and that burden was often not well received. And so he wrote an inquiry into the obligation of Christians, and this work he concluded that the scriptures taught that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times. He exhorted, he rebuked fellow believers for ignoring the Great Commission. In fact, he said this, he said, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners, who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. We must not be contented, however, with praying without exerting ourselves but in the use of means for the obtaining of those things we pray for. See, Carey believed that it was not enough that Christians and churches pray for the conversion of sinners, but they must also be prepared to go and make disciples. Someone wrote the following summary of William Carey's work. He said this, 
In it, he, that is Kerry, argued that Christ's great commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 was not just to the apostles, but to Christians of all periods. It proved to be a kind of a, a charter of modern Protestant missionary movement. Kerry showed that if Christians want to claim the comforts and promises of the New Testament, they must also accept the commands and instructions given there. Soon after the publication of that pamphlet, he delivered a famous sermon in which he admonished Christian leaders to, quote, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Maybe you've heard that before. Well, soon after that, he and a group of pastors, other pastors, reformed a, they formed a, a missionary uh, society originally called the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. That would not be a name anyone would choose today. Most of its life, it's been known as the Baptist Missionary Society, and it still exists today. In the next year, a year after this was formed, Carrie and his family, which included three boys and his wife was expecting their fourth child, and a man named John Thomas, a former surgeon, they were on a ship bound for India as the society's first missionaries. Carrie's pamphlet outlined those Christian obligations to missions, as well as his own missionary endeavors, the life that he lived. It caused many, many Protestant Christians to rethink God's call and his command to go and make disciples of all nations. And it has become sort of a, a manifesto for Protestants and for evangelical Christians since that time, since the late 1700s. And as a result, William Carey is known today as the father of modern missions. His greatest legacy in the, was in the worldwide missionary movement that developed throughout the 19th century that he inspired. He inspired missionaries like Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, David Livingston, among thousands of others who were impressed not only by his example, uh, but by that slogan, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. All this came down to William Carey's willingness to call out the church and to fulfill, for the church to fulfill its own Christian obligations that are clearly laid out in Scripture. So we've been talking a lot in this series as we've been working through Paul's letter to Titus, the epistle to Titus. We've been talking a lot about the Great Commission. But the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, it's not the only obligation for Christians to obey in Scripture. In fact, the phrase, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, is a part of our responsibility. Not only the teaching but also the observing or obeying Jesus' commands. So let's read this together. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 uh, down through chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to read this. We will pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. And then we will be looking specifically at verse 15 of chapter 2 and the first two verses of chapter 3 this morning. So Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father, I pray that you would help us today. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would help us to understand the things that you would say to us in your word. Help us to be transformed into Christ's likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to make note of the fact that that passage, those verses that I just read, um, it's a gospel sandwich, so to speak. We're going to come back to that idea. Okay, look at those verses and see the sandwich. So Paul has dealt um, with what the Christian life should look like in the church, within the body of believers who are living in communion with one another. He's been dealing with this throughout the first couple of chapters. He's addressed the church leadership and and their character and, and their responsibilities. He has emphasized the the importance of sound teaching truthful proclaiming of God's word. He's emphasized uh, discipleship as being the faith passed down through generations. He keeps coming back to Titus as the pastor. And he reminds him over and over again of his duty, for example, to to model good works, to model integrity and dignity, and, and of the importance of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. And in the midst of all of this, One of the themes that that is is God's grace, that God's grace has and continues to change us. One of the themes is that God's grace has changed us and continues to change us. Continues to train us to live in a Christ-like manner while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who saved us the one who purified us, the one who made us his own. And so now at this point, Paul once again circles back to Titus. And he circles back to Titus's responsibilities. And as he does, he issues actually several reminders that we will be looking at over the next couple of weeks. So, so let me map this out for you briefly. This morning, we're going to be looking at three reminders that could fall under the the umbrella of our Christian obligations, those areas that, that we as, as blood-bought children of God have responsibility and obligation. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at one of these areas more, uh, in, in more depth, uh, particularly the reminder from verse 1 of chapter 3 that we're to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This has been 
the last 12 months, uh, down to this week actually, or last week, has been one of the most difficult years for this issue for all of us, being submissive to authorities. And the Bible is not silent on this issue. And while I don't particularly want to address this, we preach through books of the Bible and here it is, the next verse. Rats. <laughs> but we're going to get into that more in depth next week, so please pray for me. Um, I think it will be helpful for all of us to understand these things. And then on Easter Sunday, which is in two weeks, uh, we will be addressing the next two reminders that you can see in the text there. Uh, specifically, what we were in verse 3, and then what he has done in verses 4 through 7. And it seems that those verses would be very appropriate for us to look at on Easter Sunday, don't you think? So that's the outline that we're going to be following over the next three sermons, Lord willing. But let's look at this first reminder today. And these, the first reminder are really reminders of our Christian obligations. And the first obligation is actually a pastoral obligation. A pastoral obligation. Look at verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Look back at how the chapter had started. Verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Think back to chapter 1, what is the primary task of the elder? Look at verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Beloved, your greatest need as a Christian is to regularly sit under the preaching of God's Word. Not because of the pastor. <laughs> that should be clear. But because of the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God in your heart, in your mind, and in your soul. This is your greatest need. And I commend those of you who make this your regular habit. Now one of the reasons this Chapter, the chapter division here between 2 and 3 comes after verse 15 is because there's a clear connection between the words that, that Paul has just written, verses 11 through 14, and, and this paragraph, verse 15, is its own standalone paragraph. There's a clear connection there between the gospel that he has proclaimed in verses 11 through 14 and what he says here in verse 15. But this is also connected to the instructions that follow in chapter 3 as well. So, so this verse, chapter 2 verse 15, is this standalone paragraph. It links the instructions of dealing with life in the church, chapters 1 and 2, with how Christians are to live in the world in the opening of chapter 3. He comes back to the church again later. But chapter 3 at the beginning there is clearly about life in the world. And Paul tells Titus to declare these things, to exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. And that actually means you can't disregard this verse either. So the pastor is obligated, he has an obligation to declare, rebuke, and exhort. So let's break this down. Declare. 
A more literal translation uh, would be, these things speak. These things speak. What things? This is an important question to answer. Declare these things. These things speak. What things? Because pastoral authority, this is important because pastoral authority is real, but it's not unlimited. What things is Titus to declare? Well, all of the things that Paul has written in the letter, everything that he has said, but specifically, he is to speak of the grace of God and of the glory of God. That's that previous paragraph. He is to to declare the good news that Jesus has come and the good news that he will soon come again. He is to declare the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of all unrighteousness. The preacher is of God's word is to stand before God, stand before God's people and declare that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. The preacher is to declare by the authority vested in me in God's word, that you have been forgiven of your sins. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The preacher is to declare that you are being trained, even in this very moment, to renounce your sin and to live godly lives as we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our God and Savior. Jesus Christ. It is important for us to remember that there is an authority both in biblical preaching and in biblical exhortation, as he says here. So consider this. The root of pastoral authority comes from the word of God rightly proclaimed. And while that authority is limited, it's actually not limited to the pulpit. See, Paul is reminding Titus that he is to properly exercise his God-given authority in the, in the pulpit and in general conversation when appropriate and when necessary. Paul describes for us what this looks like when he says, and he was exhorting the elders of the church of Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 to 21, when he, when he said this to the, to the Ephesian elders, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastors are to minister through preaching the good news of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then additionally, they are to minister house to house, as Paul says. Or we could put it in private conversation. 
The idea here is not so much a, a command that, they, that he goes house to house. He's just saying what he did. This could be, could be in someone's home. It could also be in a coffee shop. It could be in a counseling office at the church. It could be in the church vestry around a dinner table. The point is that he used to teach what is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, both publicly and privately. Now, I know that I'm a boring guy. My kids know this as well, by the way. Part of the reason for that is because As Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean I don't have other interests or hobbies. I happen to enjoy roasting coffee, old Volkswagens, a bit of woodworking, camping. But my entire life is given to minister the word of God. And I know that it sounds like I'm bragging right now. But I'm really trying to emphasize the importance of the Word of God in your life, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, as the Apostle Peter wrote. And this is good. This is good because sometimes the authority that needs to be exercised by the pastor or the elders is an exhortation, he says here. Which can mean give instruction. That's how it's translated in chapter 1, verse 9. Or it can also mean urge, as you see in chapter 2, verse 6. Urge the young men to be self-controlled. What's interesting about this word exhort, 2.15, is that it actually comes from the same root word that we are familiar with because Jesus used it in John chapter 14 where it's actually translated another helper. The same root word is paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And so we have to conclude that this exhortation has a decidedly positive mood. It's done to encourage. It's done to help you build up your faith. An exhortation is the reminder, your sins have been forgiven. Keep pressing on. Keep your hand to the plow. It's a reminder to love your wife as Christ loved the church. To work for the Lord and not to men. To run with endurance the race that is set before you. It is those reminders. Another reason that this is good is that these these things are often done privately is because sometimes there needs to be a rebuke. This is the, the negative or the corrective aspect of the work of the ministry. Notice again, chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This, is, this rebuke is the confronting of sin when appropriate. This is where authority sometimes needs to be exercised. And I will tell you, this is the hardest part of ministry. Anybody who's been an elder for any length of time, will tell you that. Imagine, I mentioned this in Sunday school, but imagine being the new guy going up against the leader of the apostles. That's exactly what Paul had to do in Galatians chapter 2. Listen again, this is verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, I mentioned this in Sunday school, so if you were there, there's a lot that could be unpacked from that passage. But the names are important because these were the early leaders of the church. James, Peter, Barnabas. Paul is the young new guy. Antioch was where Paul learned the ministry from Barnabas. And he stood up and he rebuked Peter of all people. And clearly, Paul was right. And so when he makes this statement to Titus saying, let no one disregard you, Paul knows what he's saying. He is speaking out of experience. He has had to do this very thing as he goes up against Peter, Barnabas, and certain men who were sent from James, the brother of Jesus himself, who was pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, most pastors I know, as we think about these things, most pastors I know are not authoritarian, despite the accusations that are often out there. In reality, they often find it difficult to bear this kind of um, divine authority, if I could put it that way. But Titus was not to be intimidated, or he was not to be otherwise dissuaded from, from discharging, from, from fulfilling his office and his responsibilities. Titus is called here to be faithful. And implicit in this, implied in this verse, is the instruction that we know from Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 17, where the, the preacher of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. But as I said, this verse links with chapter 3. And so there are other obligations here. Not only is the pastor obligated to preach God's word, declare these things, to exhort and rebuke with the authority of the Bible, there are some civil obligations that the church has as well. Look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work. Paul is never surprised to find worldly powers who are opposed to God and to his truth. Mankind is in rebellion to God, after all. But there are several reasons to render civil obedience. Let me give you just a couple. One reason to obey the government, those... Uh, authorities that God has put over us is because the church is actually not a rival to secular authorities. But the church instead works to fulfill Christ's mission. Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And he left us the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then the promise 
For lo, I am with you to the ends of the earth, or with you always. The church, therefore, must respect civil authorities in their work of governing society while focusing on its own work of caring for souls, of assembling for worship and and preaching, declaring these things. Secondly, God has established uh, the civil authorities who serve at his good pleasure. Romans 13 verse 1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, honoring them and giving them respect is a way of honoring God. Our default position, hear this carefully, our default position as Christians ought to be one of honor and respect toward government authorities. So far as we are able, we should apply Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 20, verse 25, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We should apply that teaching. And remember that on that occasion, when Jesus said those words, he was answering a question about paying taxes to an evil regime, a a regime that was involved in taxpayer-funded sin of all kinds. But the authority of the civil magistrates only goes so far. And in matters of civil obedience or civil disobedience, Christians are to be seen as model citizens, rendering honor as appropriate both to Caesar and to God. Lord willing, we're going to be going a little bit deeper into that next week. Because of the year we, are, we just had and are still having, I want to come back to this. But this morning, so that's all we're going to say about it for now, but this morning there's one more reminder that I want to point out, and it's a reminder to be good neighbors. These are our neighborly obligations. Look at verse 2. He continues not only to be ready for every good work, but to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul takes the command that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, and he he kind of expands on this by giving a couple of specifics. As Paul sees it, Christians are to, to act so graciously toward our neighbors that they're glad to have us living on the block, that they're glad to have us in the neighborhood, or that your co-workers are, are happy to work with you. And this graciousness starts with our speech. He says, speak evil of no one. Now, this phrase does not mean is not critical or never criticizes. Paul, in fact, himself, in this very letter, is critical of false teachers. In just a few verses, he's going to be extremely critical of those Christians who who stir up division in the church. Jesus was critical of the Pharisees often. And at times, he criticized his own disciples' lack of faith, right? So this is not about criticism. Paul here is talking about slander and gossip. He's talking about seeing the worst in people and talking about it and spreading it around. In fact, the phrase, speak evil, it's actually the word blaspheme. That's how strong it is. This kind of speech is out of character for a person who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 
That kind of speaking evil is out of character for someone who is a Christian, for someone who has been transformed by the power of God into Christ-likeness. Similarly, he continues and says, we are to avoid quarreling. So if the first, speak evil of no one, is sort of like finding a co-belligerent to gossip with, this is just being belligerent, right? Quarreling. This doesn't mean that we don't fight for our God-given rights. This doesn't mean that we don't stand up for important matters of, of doctrine or justice. It means that if we do need to argue, we do so out of a heart and attitude that is conscious of God's kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then the third reminder here of our obligation to, to good neighboring kind of switches from the negative to the positive. He continues and says, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The King James Version is a little bit more concise. It puts it this way. Verse 2, it says, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness to all men. Gentle and meek. These two are, are clearly linked. Christians should deal carefully with people is the idea here. We should display the, the tender strength of our master, who on, on one hand will say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides. And on the other hand, he will say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As Christians, we should display that kind of, of tender strength, the tender strength of our master. We should be humble, kind, quiet, and meek. And we should also be strong and mighty because he goes before us to accomplish his purposes. I said at the beginning that I wanted you to make note of the fact that this passage is a gospel sandwich. Let me show you what I mean as I give you sort of three gospel notes as we conclude. We're going to keep chewing on this sandwich over the next couple of weeks, by the way. But the first gospel note is this. Think of the sandwich. God's grace has appeared and is training us in these things, these obligations. And I want you to know that he, he's not just training you. He's training us. L let the hearer understand. <laughs> he's training us in these obligations. This is the indicatives before the imperatives. I'm going to make you learn this. The indicatives indicate what he has done. The imperatives are what we must do as a result. Do you see that verse 15, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 come after what he has just said in verses 11 through 14, what he has done? God's grace is working that we might obey. What Christ has done has come before and what he, what he requires of us as his people. Verse 11 through 14 comes before these obligations. Second, the second gospel note is this. Grace brings obligations. 
Now, don't get these two things confused or in the wrong order. But grace brings obligations. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. But he saved us, he says there, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you're a Christian, you're obligated to serve and obey our master. But this is a joyful obligation because you are now free. You are free. And then the third gospel note here this morning is this. He saved us. This is the sandwich. He saved us. Just listen to verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we do not presume to come to your table this morning um, based on our own righteousness, but in your mercy. We do not presume to obey you because we are mature Christians or because we are good people and because we follow the letter of the law, but because you have saved us. And we can joyfully submit to your commands, to your obligations, that you have saved us, set us apart to be zealous for good works. Father, remind us of these things, that we might be a people who submits because of your salvation. Father, we pray as we come to the table this morning that you, your name would be proclaimed Father, we pray that as we come to the table this morning, that you would proclaim the truth of Jesus' shed blood, his crucified body. You would remind us of the truth of the gospel, Lord. You would proclaim it to our hearts, that we might serve you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.